these multimodal digital literacy activity books based upon our vocabulary units of study. So um, when we're together, I'm able to introduce our new vocabulary unit and um, students can see how to complete these digital literacy activity books that incorporate all of our language domains of writing, reading, speaking, and listening using blended learning and interactive tasks within a digital kind of activity book for an I do in their remote learning environment. So they're able to complete the books um, and kind of that I do part of the gradual release to, to show what they know about our new content vocabulary as well as um, you know, practicing all of the language domains. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What lessons can we learn from educators who have worked with English learners in hybrid learning models from the beginning of the pandemic? How can we use free built-in accessibility tools on devices to personalize learning for our students? What are some simple strategies and tools we can implement to incorporate speaking, listening, reading, and writing skills in both synchronous and asynchronous lessons? We discuss these questions and much more with Katie Gardner. Katie is an elementary English as a Second Language teacher in Salisbury, North Carolina. She is an Apple Distinguished Educator, PBS Digital Innovator, Lego Master Educator, National Geographic Certified Educator, Write Reader, Seesaw, and Buncee Ambassador, and a National Board Certified Teacher in English as a New Language. She has a passion for creating blended learning lessons to engage early learners and support second language acquisition. Katie has been a featured presenter and workshop leader at National Early Learning, Technology, and ESL conferences. You can follow Katie on Twitter at at GardnerKB1, that's G-A-R-D-N-E-R-K-B-1, and check out our show notes for more contact information. Katie Gardner, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you too. I was saying right before we started that this is really like in my wheelhouse as uh as a former, you know, Spanish teacher and and not a not a formal tech integrator, but somebody who did a lot of tech integration work. So this is an exciting conversation, especially now. Yeah. And I know that that's something that you do a lot as well. And I know you you know you're coming from um, a one to one school. We should say that right away because not every school necessarily has the uh, the luxury of having that, although more and more are. And you've also been in a hybrid instructional setting for a lot of time now. So I think two pieces we can take from that is one, your experience, you're probably more than others in a hybrid setting and probably more than others in a one-to-one setting. And a lot of schools are either shifting or are going to shift to both of those. If they're not one-to-one, they'll hopefully get there. And if they're still remote, they're probably going to be in this hybrid phase for at least some point, and maybe it will go on for a little longer. So all that um, being said, I guess to get us started, I'm curious to hear from you what you think some of the main advantages are uh, with this model, specifically when it comes to um, educating our English learners. Yeah, so great question. Um, I I feel one, I feel really blessed that I work in a one-to-one school district. Um, So this means that each of my students have an iPad um, that they use here in the classroom, and then they're able to take them home and use during their virtual learning days. So, you know, transitioning to this hybrid learning environment in the beginning of the school year was 
definitely challenging and something new um, for all of us here at our school. And um, I do feel like I have grown in, in my teaching through this experience um, and really learned how to, to tailor my teaching to adapt to the new learning environment to support the students both face-to-face um, -face and in the virtual learning environment setting. So um, when my students are with me face-to-face -face two days a week, um, I'm really able to, to support and model the learning. And then I'm able to roll out and push out virtual assignments for them to complete on their, their three remote learning days at home. Um, I've found that the time that we have together uh, in the face-to-face -face school environment has been really great because I'm able to model and introduce the new content or new vocabulary. Um, and that's that time, you know, we can interact with manipulatives, hands-on, um, look at pictures, realia, use those, those rich read-aloud texts. And um, I do a lot of movement and learning with, with TPR, physical responses, kinesthetic movements. Um, and <clears throat> I'm able to really set the expectations for what I'm looking for when they complete those virtual and remote assignments. Um, and that time, you know, students are able to ask and answer questions about those remote tasks and really, you know, explain to them what I'm looking for and the expectations of how to complete the task. Yeah, so it sounds like a mixture of both using that time to make sure that you're setting expectations and making sure that your students know what they need to be doing, but also using that time or and also using that time for a lot of sort of movement and you talked about manipulatives, which I think is great. You know, I think there can be a tendency uh, and I think many of us were guilt, including myself as a teacher of this before COVID of, you know, using face-to-face -face time as sort of the time that I'm going to get all my information to students. I'm going to lecture and make sure that they have everything they need. And then at home, they can do that work. And a lot of that, those barriers were broken down, you know, over time with things like the flipped classroom and blended learning. But now it's kind of a forced um, thing, which I think is, 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 uh, is really interesting. Um, and so you have those two days of face-to-face -face and you've had it for a long time, which I think is, um, I was talking with somebody yesterday and they were talking about the luxury of seeing their students. You know, we, we never would have thought of that as a luxury before, but it must be in some ways kind of luxurious for you to have had this for such a long time. It is. And I, and I will mention that with the hybrid learning, you know, students are split into two groups. So, you know, we have a group that comes Monday, Tuesday, our A group, and then a group that comes Thursday, Friday. And this was also, you know, to make the class sizes smaller because we have to social distance. We have to, you know, we're constantly cleaning and, you know, wearing our masks and things like that. So um, it does create such a small class size, which is wonderful for that really personalized one-on-one -on -one small group instruction. Um, which also helps, you know, support the learning. Yeah, those small class sizes, I'm sure, don't necessarily completely compensate for having them five days a week, but it must be nice and it must, do, you know, goes at least somewhere in that direction, which is great. And I know from from our conversation before and from having read um, an article of yours in Edutopia, which we will uh, link to, um, you know, you work with a lot of newcomers and SIFE students. And when we were last talking, you know, like many teachers who are working with these populations, many of these kids are in just complete survival mode. Some of them, as people will recognize, don't even necessarily know how to hold a pencil and do other kind of basic school tasks. Um, and so given that reduction in valuable FaceTime that we've talked about, even though you have the luxury of seeing them a couple days a week, how have you gone about uh, first like diagnosing and then working to kind of meet their basic social emotional needs 
so that they're in a place where they can learn. Because I mean, everybody that I talk with, rightly so, is concerned with that before the learning happens. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, like you said, it's, it's Maslow's before the blooms. It's how, how is the student doing? It's, it's the child before the technology, you know, most importantly. Um, and I think that's why we need to take advantage of the time we do have face-to-face -to, -face to, to do those daily check-ins with the children, um, with the students, and just, let's just have a quick chat. If it's a morning meeting time or, you know, before we start our ESL class time, how are you feeling? What have you been up to at home? Um, how are things going at home? And also during that virtual learning time, really creating that screen time is more of a lifeline and, um, you know, checking in with the students and the, the families there using that screen time as that lifeline of how are things going? What can I do for you? How can I support you? Not only with supporting the learning at home, but just in life and what, what is there anything you need help with? Um, are there any community resources I can point you to? Um, and I think just building that that team of the family, the student, the teachers, you know, to, so everybody's supporting one another um, to succeed and, and survive both in and out of the classroom. Um, I try really hard to create my classroom as a warm, welcoming, safe environment. My students are able to use our native language here in my classroom. They know they can express themselves in their native language. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want them to feel scared that they have to speak English all the time and, you know, only um, use that, la that second language. So um, I really try hard to create, you know, a great positive classroom environment that they look forward to coming to and they know it's a happy and safe place. Um, and I think also just getting to know our students as a whole before, you know, Corona and COVID, I, I made it a point to uh, conduct home visits with my students. Um, to really get to know the child both in and out of the classroom. At this time, I would go to their homes um, if they would like me to and show them how to continue the learning at home with the resources they have. Um, and you know, this we're not really able to now, but uh, because of doing that for so many years, I've really gotten to know our school's families and, you know, having siblings and other siblings of um, now in my class, you know, I, I know the families and I feel like I've established a, a great connection with the parents and that they know they can reach out to me and I'm going to be there to help them if it's a learning task, if it's guiding and navigate them on how to use the iPad at home, or if it's, um, you know, a food delivery or, you know, we need more, more foods at home. So things like that. Yeah, let's let's actually talk more about that. I was going to ask this question later, but we're on the topic now, so I think let's let's get into it a little bit. And that's about you know we we spend a tremendous amount of time talking about family engagement, and like with many on the podcast, like with many things, I feel like I can categorize it in pre-COVID family engagement conversations and post-COVID family engagement conversations, both of which were were looked upon as important, right? But I think. Now it's become this thing that's not only important, it's just completely integral part of, of what of what we need to do. And you just got into it um, a little bit there and talked about the home visits and how you kind of had a little bit of a, a leg up and hopefully many teachers do because they've already gotten to know their families. And I've heard that a lot that, you know, if, if, if districts, schools or just individual teachers were already doing a good job with family engagement, it was already a priority, then they had an advantage that they knew them and they could get on a screen and sort of still be able to make those connections. Um, but I guess my question here, and you got into it a little bit, but I'd love for you to expand on it a little bit. How have you gone about um, 
engaging with families so that they can be involved in their children's education. And this, just like we talked about before, you have students who maybe don't know how to pencil, hold a pencil. You also have parents who may not be able to read or write even in their own language, and, and they may t lack these technology skills. So how have you gone about sort of making that happen? Sure. Um, so I found a lot of power in creating videos for my, my parents and my students, um, learning videos. And within these learning videos, I personally, I use um, the Clips app a lot because I choose this app because I'm able to create a live titles feature, which if I'm creating this the video in English, I can have kind of a Spanish subtitle or you know, vice versa, speak in Spanish in the video and have the English subtitle. So it really supports um, you know, the, the language at home if students are trying to learn um, and families are trying to help their students. These are kind of weekly newsletter videos informing the parents and the students of what we're learning in the classroom. Here's how you can practice it at home with kind of a flip lesson that uses you know, minimal materials um, that they have at home. So I've found a lot of power in these teaching videos. Um, a lot of, you know, if it's, it's FaceTime or Zoom calls with parents and students, um, showing them how to navigate through the iPad and use those apps and features um, to continue the learning, how to use different kind of um, translation apps on their, their smartphones or the devices they have at home, if, if that you know, will help them understand what's being expected of the students and the directions of a task. Um, and just creating kind of joint engagement, uh, interactive lessons or tasks that, you know, they, the parent and the students might have to create something together or, you know, an older sibling and the student, let's, you know, use the screen time to then go and create using things we have at home. If it's, you know, write a recipe and make something or let's make a, a stop motion video with our toys at home or, um, you know, identifying different vocabulary words around the house. Um, something that they can do that's fun together uh, to, to practice the learning, but also really act, interact with each other and have fun with it. Yeah, and I would imagine that in addition to you sending out videos to, to parents, which, which I, I assume happens kind of throughout the instructional cycle from the beginning of the year to the end, but maybe more front-loaded at the beginning, I'm just speculating there, so feel free to, um, to, to push back, but I, I also imagine that students must feel pretty empowered when they're able to show their parents how to do certain things, like maybe a stop-motion video, whatever the case may be, um, while also sort of, you know, you maintain that kind of uh, parent-child relationship and dynamic, which of course is different in different cultures, but that must be really interesting for and empowering for a kid to be able to teach their parents to do, to do something uh, with a tech tool. Have you seen that happen? Um, and, and do you kind of intentionally do that or do you stay away from that? No, I, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, with my young English language learners in my classroom, we really use our devices from the get-go of the, the beginning of the year. You know, we dive into here's how we use the iPad to create, to communicate, to collaborate and um, using different apps and features. And um, so when they go home and, you know, the parents aren't quite sure what to do, they really have to look to these, you know, young students as the, the media mentors and showing them and trusting them that they know where to tap or, you know, manipulate and play something or how to listen to that audio recording, or this is how we can see the video again. And um, 
having parents really trust that the five-year-olds do know what they're doing and <laughs> they can do it. Um, so, and of course that takes while we're in the classroom that that special and important time to really model and guide the students and, and using that gradual release um, process and, and teaching strategy. So yes, it's been, um, you know, I think challenging for some parents to really you know, and trust that the students know what they're doing and they can they can navigate around the device uh, a lot of times better than some of our parents can. Which, right, right. Kind of cool to see, you know, that that they know. Certainly happens in my family, and I feel like I'm pretty good with technology. <laughs> but then you talk to my eight, uh, almost nine year old, and it's like, no, I, there's a lot of things I don't know how to do. Although there's a lot of things that he doesn't know how to do that I'm trying to teach him as well. But anyway, that's another conversation for another time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you just mentioned gradual release model, which I think is really important. And I think most people who are listening know what the gradual release model is. Um, but how has it helped your students function more effectively uh, when they're working independently in asynchronous environments? Maybe give us a like an example of how that works and, and, and what benefits you've seen. Sure. So um, with the gradual release model, it's like you said, I think a lot of us use it um, within our teaching. I kind of follow the I do, we do, you do strategy so um you know those days when we're in class together i'm really able to to you know i do it i model i guide i do a think aloud i show and you know students what's expected and how to do a task students and i are able to do it together um you know at a slow pace step by step really um complete a, a task together to make sure everybody understands how and what's expected and what to do um, and then on those remote days, I'm, you know, I'm able to roll out a virtual task for students to, I do, um, and, and show me that they, you know, understand the learning and are working towards mastery. And, you know, I'm able to get the work back and, and assess the learning and see if there's a need for remediation or reteaching. And um, I use this strategy a lot in I create these multimodal digital literacy activity books based upon our vocabulary units of study. So um, when we're together, I'm able to introduce our new vocabulary unit and um, students can, you know, see how to complete these digital literacy activity books that incorporate all of our language domains of writing, reading, speaking, and listening using blended learning and interactive tasks within a digital kind of activity book um for an i do in their remote learning environment so they're able to complete the books um and kind of that i do part of the gradual release to to show what they know about our new content vocabulary as well as um you know practicing all of the language domains within my i can with clips video lesson series um students receive those teaching videos twice a week that also use the gradual release model and we I model it through the video, they practice it with me on the iPad, and then it has that flipped lesson for them to do the task independently at home and then send their work to me to, to assess the learning. Hi, everyone. I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to highest aspirations. Yeah, 
So you just talked about the strategy, which I think is uh, great and obviously pedagogically sound, um, you know, sort of following that um, I do, we do, you do model. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening um, that are interested in hearing about, you know, maybe what some tools are um, that you use to 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 make that happen. Um, you talked about clips. Uh, mm -hmm. When you talked about um, this kind of, uh, I think you called it intermodal, a, a way that you can kind of create, um, you know, uh, products that have a bit of speed, speaking, reading, writing, and listening. I did some of that with digital portfolios with an app that I don't even know if it still exists called Book Creator. Um, but I'm curious to hear what kind of what tools are you using to to allow those students to not only do this but sort of be really engaged in that work when they're working um, on their own. Sure. So um, you know, part of the idea process in some of these activities might be for students to create an audio recording, reading you know a, a poem or a fluency passage. It might be for them to create a selfie video explaining an answer to my question. Um, to, to show what they know and practice answering in those complete detailed sentences. It might be for them to create a drawing, um, listen to my story and then draw what you hear to practice those listening skills. Um, it might be a, a blended learning task where students are asked to listen to vocabulary sentences with sight words, write pencil to paper, take a picture of that uh, writing and send it to me and record yourself reading what you wrote. Um, you know, there's so many tools and features of the iPad that allow students to, to show me what they know, um, you know, in that virtual learning environment. Yeah, and you, you had called, and this is another thing I was going to get into later, but we're getting into now, so I'd like to talk about it. You, you used an expression that I really liked, I've never heard it before, but like, I think you called it, um, if I look back at my notes, secret built-in tools, <laughs> right? Which which I've never been able to like articulate it that way. But when I think of that, I think about, I know your school's one-to-one -one iPad. I was in a school that was one-to-one -one iPad as well, but I've also, you know, used Chromebooks and whatever else. But there's all these tools that aren't really, de they're not designed for EL education or language learning, but they work really, really um, well. And they can help sort of differentiate scaffold learning. What, what are a couple of those tools that are kind of like go-tos for you that you might be able to, um, to share with us? Sure. So yeah, those those secret secret tools um, are also known as you know accessibility features. Exactly. That, yeah. That our iPad has. Um, we we use those a lot in my class, and there there's such great supports for our ELL students. Um, and I think unfortunately sometimes they're overlooked. And if we just show students how to you know turn on some of these features or these secret tools it really can support the learning, especially in the virtual learning environment when they're trying to complete some of these tasks independently um, and, and creating those extra supports. So for example, um, the, the spoken content accessibility feature where students are allowed to, to highlight a section of the text and then select the option of speak. And they can hear that text read aloud to them you know, by the computer. And as the teacher, you, know, you can change, you know, who's reading it aloud if it's a male or a female and the the rate they read it um you know to really personalize it for the student and showing students how to do this um, you know if i ask students at home during virtual learning to practice fluency by recording themselves reading a vocabulary poem you know three times and they don't remember you know reading it together in class or they need that extra support of hearing it read to them again 
they know that they can just select and highlight that text, select speak, and they can hear it read to them aloud at home. And you know, some of our students might not have an older sibling or a parent right there to read it to them in English. So it's it's a great you know feature that can really support the learning at home, as well as the dictation feature on the keyboard. So um, if I ask students to type the answer to one of my questions, especially for our early learners or maybe newcomer students who might not have mastered all the letters and letter sounds or be able to sit there and type um, you know a complete sentence or it might take them a really long time we practice using that dictation feature on the keyboard which you know we just look for the little picture of the microphone and they touch it and they're able to speak into the ipad and it types it for them but little do they know that this is also a great speaking practice because they're you know challenged and they have to speak slowly clearly and loudly you know into the ipad for it to correctly dictate and write or type out onto the iPad what they're saying. So we practice this a lot in class during our one-to-one, -one, you know, our in-class learning um, using this tool and accessibility feature to, to help us complete our work and really talk about why it's important that when you use that dictation, you have to speak the right way um, and really think about what you're gonna say before you, you touch it. And, you know, as we know, this is a great practice for WIDA, for access, for mm -hmm. our, our ESL testing, you know, where students are asked to speak into the, the, um, the iPad. So preparing them for that as well. Yeah, but you know, you're not, you're, and I think everybody knows, who's listening knows this, but you're not, you're not like doing test prep there. You're learning, <laughs> you're learning like, but you're, but you are, it's like a nice side benefit. And I know that from like having taught AP Spanish and the kids have to record and, you know, and so like, you have to get them used to that, whatever they're using. Of course, even five years ago, they were still using cassettes, which is crazy, but um, I don't know what they're doing now, <laughs> but I had to like practice this a bit of a like side note here. But for those of you who know what a cassette is, a tape, you know, you'd have to like click record. And of course, none of my students, even five years ago, had any idea what the thing even was, the cassettes you had to learn. But it also got them to speak in a really kind of controlled way. And I think getting back to what you just mentioned, there's a, there's a, a couple, I think, huge takeaways here. One, for those of us who are lucky enough not to need any accessibility tools, we may not know about them. Um, and But those accessibility tools that are built in and they are, they're like little secrets, like nobody knows about them. And even if they do know about them, sometimes it's hard to, there's a disconnect between, well, it's an accessibility tool, it's used for this thing, but it can be used for so much more. And I think it, it must blow people's minds if you're in a PD and you say, hey, by the way, like you have all these secret tools in here that you can use. I mean, it's, it's what people are looking for. And I think a lot of people are looking for a specific tool that does that specific thing for that specific student. And I think the main, main takeaway here is that there are a lot of things that exist that can be helpful for a variety of students in a variety of different ways. I also really like what you talked about, about you're, you're deliberately showing these students that these things exist. And they're, and again, I'd love to hear your response here, but I imagine that there are some students who, for example, check out that dictation thing and say, that's eh, not for me, or, or I don't really like that, or I don't really need it. But they might be the same student who for you know, another tool, it might be like this incredible thing to use. So you're giving them some tools that they can use so that they have the agency in some cases, these are young kids, so I'm not sure how much agency they have, but they have agency to kind of choose which tools are working for them. And they must grow with that. I mean, like, those are skills that they're going to take with them for the rest of their lives, language aside. Yeah, I, um, I totally agree. And I think it also kind of, you know, it levels the playing field. There should be no more excuses of, 
they can't complete a remote, a remote assignment because they couldn't read it um, or they, they didn't know how to type out the sentence on the iPad, um, right? Because now they know and they know how to use some of these features and it really supports and scaffolds the, the task so that all of our learners of all levels can succeed and can complete it. Um, so, you know, we're not, there's no more, I don't know how, I can't do it. You do know how, you have, you know, these tools in your toolbox and on your iPad um, and you know how to use them. So it, they will help you so that you can do it because we know that you can do it. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're providing, you're empowering students with the skills and then it's just a matter, and we'll get to this in a second, but then it's just a matter of how do you motivate students to do uh, this work in such a crazy environment. But before we get into that, before we get into that, which I, I want to talk a little bit about that um, in a second, but, you know, one of the big things that I'm really trying to ask people a lot about now, because particularly people like you who are, who are working with students every day, um, is this whole idea of learning loss. I mean, if you if you get like alerts about Yale education, every other article, it seems like that you're reading is about learning loss. And it's, it's a huge concern for English learners, rightly so. I mean, March, April, and May, and if you were in school in June last year, were really difficult. I mean, people were just trying to survive. So, um, you know, this learning loss, uh, people are afraid it's gonna manifest itself both in sort of content skills and, and language. Um, and, and I know that a lot of teachers are sort of particularly concerned that their ELs aren't getting enough time to practice language skills in small groups like they do in schools or uh, in school or with partner work or class discussions and, and all of that good stuff. So what are some strategies and tools that you have used to get your students talking, particularly when they're not um, meeting face to face? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question and a good point. I think... Um, it, it's a matter of creating those remote or you know virtual tasks that incorporate speaking. Um, you know, even if it's a writing assignment, I also try and blend in speaking practice. Um, you know, if it's you know write several sentences or answer to my questions, but then I need you to record yourself reading what you wrote. Um, I think it's about creating really engaging speaking tasks to practice those speaking skills at home. If it's talking about a mystery picture using complete sentences and then providing those sentence starters as a support. Um, if it's watching a wordless Pixar video that, you know, it's great for our ELLs because it takes the language out of it and understanding, um, you know, the language part, but retell what, what is happening in this, in this, you know, wordless Pixar video. I used to do um, that all the time with, even with my high school kids for Spanish. It. And the mystery yeah. picture too. It's like, it's effective in all grades. It's just funny it you is. said that. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's just about creating those fun, really engaging tasks that get students, you know, speaking and talking. If it's um, going on a scavenger hunt around the house and creating a video showing me different things around your house um, to incorporate vocabulary words. Um, you know, I think, I think it's just about creating those fun and engaging tasks when they're, they're speaking. I think we all know a lot of our students nowadays want to become YouTubers when they grow up and they watch a lot of YouTube. So I have one of those. when I ask them to create, yeah, when I ask them to create those, you know, those selfie videos, like let's pretend we're YouTubers and talk about this. Tell me something, pretend you're creating a YouTube video and explain to me, you know, the answer to my question. Um, so I, I think, you know, 
kind of rephrasing those, those speaking practices so that they're engaged and they want to complete them, but also providing them with enough support so that they can do it. If it's providing them with pictures to talk about, text, labels, words, sentence starters. Um, so it's not only talk about it, but here are the supports to help you really create a, a, a good, you know, detailed speaking um, um, practice, I guess. Yeah, and I'm glad you ended with that because like the, and I've been guilty of this for sure. Uh, the worst thing you can do when you're doing something like this, it's like project-based learning. Okay, here's the project, go. <laughs> you know, you have to have some scaffolds and you have to have, um, you know, you mentioned a lot of them. And, and I guess they, those have to be baked in pretty early, which must be, that must be useful for you again, to have this sort of, and I'm doing air quotes, the luxury of having your students, you know, a couple of days a week to be able to kind of build those in and practice with them. Right. And that's part of the gradual release that eventually uh, muscle memory and in some, in some instances must kick in about some of the strategies they can use to go about doing something that's a little bit more uh, sort of loose. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but you have to do it over and over again for that to happen. Um, okay, so so now for the for the question that I think is like the, uh, I don't think it's a devil's advocate question. I think it's a real question. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we, I think when people kind of go and listen to this podcast and they look at the title, they're thinking, okay, like, you know, technology is obviously a huge piece now, and it would probably benefit me from learning some tech tools. But what about screen time? Um, and I didn't want to leave this conversation without talking about that real thing. I have four kids that are in remote and hybrid and face-to-face -face learning environments, all different, different days. I don't even know who's coming and going at this point, but I know, like, I get concerned, you know, that, um, at the end of the day, if, if my kids want to watch a show or they want to like play video games or whatever the case may be, I'm thinking they've been on screens all day, like if they're remote or if they're hybrid. So what alternatives have you maybe implemented or can we implement to provide students the opportunity to kind of take breaks from screens, but still learn both? Well, I guess most particularly in the asynchronous environment when, you know, they're kind of relying on the screen for that FaceTime. Right. Yeah. Well, I think one, you know, going back to that, looking at that screen time is more of a lifeline. And then I think I work hard to really create blended learning tasks, which incorporate a digital prompt. So if students see a digital writing prompt, a picture, a video, and then are asked to go, you know, put down the screen and go create. Go, if it's a personalized pencil to paper product, if it's go create something with your toys, um, you know, to show me the use of positional words or different vocabulary words, if it's, and then write about it, pencil to paper. Um, if it's go, you know, create a recipe and cook something with your mom and then come back and take a picture of it to share with me. So I, I work hard to create these kind of digital prompts where then students are asked to go collaborate or create without the device um, to not only practice those, you know, we need that practice with that pencil to paper, those foundation and fundamental skills, but but also to go, you know, we can use so many things around our house to, to support the learning, um, um, practice our language domains and the new, the new content vocabulary. So a lot of times I, my lessons are purposely created to have students, you know, see a prompt, see a video, see a guide of what they need to do to then 
like you said, put down the iPad, go create, and then, you know, come back and share and using, you know, either an audio recording, a video, a picture, something like that. So, and I think too, um, you know, students should know it's, it's okay to take brain breaks within our work. You know, if, if they're completing one of my digital uh, literacy activity books and they've worked for a little bit, put down the screen, take that brain break, go five, find five things around the house that begin with our letter of the week, you know, or go, let's incorporate some math and some PE, go do some jumping jacks, you know, five times or, you know, whatever it may be, but taking those, you know, purposeful brain breaks, which I do try and implement throughout my lessons to remind students. Um, you know, really get up and move. And I believe a lot in the kinesthetic movements and TPR and things like that. So. Right. That'd be another good conversation, the physical movement and TPR <laughs> in the era of remote and hybrid learning, which is I'm sure challenging as well, but yeah. you've, you've mentioned that enough times now that I feel like that's an interesting topic. Um, you, the other thing that you said, you have, you've said it a few times that I, that I like, uh, screen time as a lifeline. Is that, was it, am I quoting that the right way? Yes. Uh -huh. And I like that because it means that, you know, that's the thing that's connecting, right? But it doesn't mean that you need to be on it the entire time. And I think your example of giving a digital prompt, having a student do something else um, is a great example of, of that. It obviously, clearly we can't function in the way that you are describing without having those devices, but it doesn't mean we need to be on them 100% of the time. Right. Great. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and I, like I said, I, I, at the, at the beginning, there's a, there's an article, uh, that you wrote that I, that I will link to that I think gives a lot of really great examples. And if you like reading that might be a little bit easier to kind of take in. Um, but I want to, uh, give you the opportunity to, um, let us know if there's a book or other resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to, to share with listeners. Sure. Um, so <laughs> A book I read pretty recently that I personally had had a personal connection to was um, the Ron Clark book, Move Your Bus. I, I'm a runner. I love running um, in my, my time outside of school. Um, it's kind of my free therapy. It's my lesson planning time. I just, I love to run um, and exercise, but this book really spoke to me because it talks about being a runner. And um, for me, when it comes to creating things for my students, creating engaging tasks, finding out about new things with technology. Um, you know, how can I incorporate augmented reality within my classroom or how can I use this new app or program to, to blend the learning and the language standards and literacy skills. Um, I just love challenging myself, always challenging myself to think outside the box and, um, you know, run as I'm, I'm here in school. And so this, this book really spoke to me um, being a, a runner, both in and outside the classroom. I'm racking my brain to think about who the other guest that I had on was that 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 um, that mentioned that book. But you're the second person to mention it. And I have yet to oh, read really? it. <laughs> yeah, and and like I say, I say this all the time on the podcast is that you know I think part of the reason I asked that question is just so I know which books to read. Hopefully, people that are <laughs> listening, hopefully people that are listening do too. But somehow I didn't get that one. So now that you're the second person, I absolutely um, will will uh, get it uh, and read it. Ron Clark is the author, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right. So I, I've mentioned that uh, Edutopia article a few times now, which again, we'll link to. Um, and I know you have a, a, a Twitter handle as well. How can people learn a little bit more about the work that you're doing? 
Um, yeah, so I think uh, refer to that Edutopia article. I think that was, um, you know, a nice way. I, I included some different lesson examples of how we incorporate some fun kind of things with technology into our hybrid learning environment. Um, yeah, and there's and links to, not to interrupt, but there's links to uh, the, some of the videos that you were talking about, which I think is really cool. Yeah, and then um, I love connecting with my my PLN on Twitter. Um, I love sharing and collaborating with different lessons, activities, um, you know, posting pictures of how we are learning in the classroom. And um, so, yeah, please just check out check out my Twitter, and um, you know, feel free to reach out to me, and you know, let's you know share resources and ideas, and you know, work together. I think that's where I found you on Twitter after I read the article, right? Yeah. yeah. What's 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 your handle again? Um, it's Gardner KB One. Okay, cool. And we'll link to it, Gardner KB One. Okay. Sure. Yeah, but that goes to show I've been a little bit. Um, I used to be a lot more active on Twitter than I was. Something about this whole last year has kind of driven me away. I don't know why. It's not a good thing because I learned so much. But I did reach out to you on it, so that's one good benefit that's come from it um, over the last month I or so. Love it. I feel like a lot of times um, it's so, you know, much more effective to see examples or videos of how the students are learning or how they're using our iPads within the classroom or during virtual assignments on things like Twitter, where you can see videos of them actually, you know, taking place in the learning than you trying to explain looking at AR animals around the room. And <laughs> Absolutely. Like it's it's uh, it is a treasure trove of good information, and and the more that you kind of build a PLN that's sort of like minded or, you know, doing the same work that you are, the more you get from it. So I I I think it's a great thing. Um, well, Katie Gardner, it's been a, a pleasure talking with you. Um, I hope that you had fun, and I hope that there were some things that our listeners uh, learned that can take with them. Yes, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.